God, we ask now that you would uh, search us, know us, show us where there be any grievous way in us, and lead us uh, toward life everlasting. Lead us toward more faithfully walking on the straight and narrow path of life and the path that brings you honor, the most honor we could bring you by the way that we live. That's what we want, and we pray you would use your word to help us in that way. God, we commit this, uh, these next moments to you. We pray that uh, the words that I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4. And we'll pick up where we left off last week, Acts 4.32. Um, in the last two weeks, in Acts 4, I hope you remember, we, we've read about the very first flickers of persecution that broke out against the church. And it didn't take very long for that to come. Uh, John Stott describes chapters 4 and 5 of Acts as Satan's initial counterattack to the explosive early growth of the church and the rapid advance of the gospel message. Many people were being saved through faith in Christ. Many were being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So we should expect that the prince of darkness would not sit idly by. He didn't. Uh, the first battlefront of Satan's counterattack came from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. In chapter 4, they arrested and imprisoned the apostles Peter and John. They charged them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. They threatened punishment if they didn't. And actually, we'll see next week, most of chapter 5 tells us about that same thing happening again. The religious leaders arrest and imprison the apostles. They charge them to stop speaking about Christ. They beat them this time for doing so. And they threatened punishment if they didn't stop. And so our scripture passage for today is sandwiched in between these two very similar stories of the first persecution that came against the church. And the passage today gives us a look inside the church community to see what was happening in the fellowship, in the midst of mounting opposition on the outside. And when we look into the early church, we'll see another battlefront of Satan's war against her, but on the inside this time. And we'll also see in this passage how a church can withstand Satan's attacks without and within. How a church can be spiritually healthy and vibrant and safe despite external pressures and internal troubles. And this portion of God's Word points out two things in particular that will protect and nourish a church or will protect and nourish a believer against any spiritual threat. That is great grace and great fear. If you look at the end of verse 34 in chapter 4, you'll find it says, great grace was upon them all. If you look at chapter 5, verse 11, you'll see it says, great fear came upon the whole church. 
That's what we need. This section of Scripture tells us first about a church of great grace. It's the first big idea, the church of great grace. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Well, did you see in verse 33... That great grace came on the heels of great power. It was grace-giving power. And if this kind of power is great in the church, then the grace on the church will be great as well. It's the power of the gospel. Verse 33 said, With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus So this power refers to the effectiveness of their proclaiming the work of Christ. When they spoke about the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's the gospel, God was doing things. God was using those truths to accomplish things. That's power. And clearly, we've seen in Acts, God was working through the gospel message to save the lost, lots of them. That's the power of the gospel. But the gospel was not only having powerful effects on the lost. The assertion of verse 33 that great grace was upon them all, that shows an effect that the gospel was having on the believers. So sinners were being converted by the power of the gospel, and the believers in the church, according to verse 32, were made deeply unified and unbelievably generous because of the power of the gospel. I think that that description in verse 32 is what was meant, that great grace was upon them all. That's what it looked like. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They had everything in common. And there's a progression there. They shared all their belongings because first, and more fundamentally, they shared one heart. They, they held everything in common because they understood themselves to be sharing one common life together as if one soul. And if in the very core of who I am is faith in the gospel, and I find that same heart in you, then we are in a sense of one heart. If I am trusting in Christ in a living and active way, that will foster an incredible sense of unity with others who are trusting Christ in that same way. Embracing the good news about Jesus changes the way that you think about yourself and the way that you think about other believers if the gospel is at work in you in power. As believers, we are united objectively. It's a fact. We are united in Christ. But, but when the truths about what Christ did for us are affecting us in power, then we will feel compelled to actually live out that unity and experience it in concrete ways. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and the gospel is the power of God to make the saved unified and generous. And when that's happening in a church, you know great grace is upon them. And there will be spiritual strength and safety there. A believer who is working and giving and sacrificing and sharing as part of a one heart, one soul church fellowship, a fellowship that's open-hearted and and open-handed, well, that believer will draw from that unified fellowship strength to remain faithful to Jesus even in the midst of threats of persecution. On the contrary, when believers are self-absorbed or isolationist or stingy and clingy about their belongings, then, presumably, great grace is not then working upon them. And those outer symptoms then indicate their heart is not in a good place to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In the church of great grace, no one said about any of the things that they had, that's mine. They didn't divide up their belongings into two categories. That which is shareable and that which is for me exclusively. Growing out of their faith in Christ, they they viewed everything they had as something they had for the benefit of Christ's people. Obviously, common sense is involved in saying that and other principles of righteousness. The Bible teaches us to say, I am not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ, and so my possessions are not my own. My possessions belong to Christ, and if Christ lived as the servant of his people, then I as his follower will also live as the servant of his people. If Christ laid down his life for them, I will share my life for them, and certainly I can give away my stuff for them if ever they have need. It's worth asking if we should really expect the gospel to go out from us in power, like the beginning of Acts 4, if the gospel is not first working in us in power, in these ways that we see at the end of chapter 4. And the believers who had great grace upon them were not just giving away bags of rice and blankets, not just the extra box springs that they had in the garage. Some of them were selling houses and land. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of houses or lands, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Well, clearly, great grace has great effects. This is radical generosity for the people and cause of Christ. You know, perhaps your view of the power of God's grace is too small. Maybe your vision needs to be stretched concerning what might be possible if great grace was upon us. Now, 
uh, we saw a very similar thing said about the church at the end of chapter 2, and we said then that, that this is not describing some kind of once-for-all, everyone-sell-it-all kind of movement. Uh, the way these verses are worded indicates that this was ongoing action, meaning these kinds of actions were typical. Uh, they were happening regularly on various different occasions in response to various needs. Notice that the believers were not selling houses and lands just so other people in the church could become enriched with houses and lands instead of them. Now, the clear purpose was to meet the needs that other believers might have. The end of verse 35 confirmed that. Proceeds were distributed to each as any had need. Okay, that was the determining variable regarding this distribution. The degree to which any had need. That was the plan. That was the result, too. Like the beginning of verse 34 told us, there was not a needy person among them. Okay, so they did not aim for uh, the, the pseudo-virtue that's popular today, that every person should have an equal amount of everything. No. Their radical generosity was to ensure there was no needy person among them. And so there wasn't. And, and these verses confirm uh, what I said earlier, I think, that, that the church's radical generosity and sacrificial need meaning that was... In the main, what verse 33 meant when it said great grace was upon them. Uh, and in, in the original Greek, verse 34 actually begins with the word for. And a few of our English translations reflect that. Uh, so, so the flow of thought then from the end of verse 33 is great grace was upon them all for there was not a needy person among them. And so the great grace was seen or explained by the great generosity, the, the selling and the sharing and the lack of people being in need. And if you think about that carefully, uh, that should make a lot of sense, that there would be a profound connection between grace and generosity. That, that's like saying there's a profound connection between gift and giving. God's grace is His giving to us. Unmerited, unearned gifts. It is His free, benevolent giving to bless undeserving sinners to meet our greatest needs. That's God's grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's grace. The testimony about Jesus that was going forth with great power in those days was the testimony of God's grace. God gave His Son freely he gives salvation freely and every spiritual blessing freely if we simply receive it by receiving His Son. All these gifts of grace God gives in Christ on the basis of what Christ did in dying for our sins and rising. God's gifts of grace include things like forgiveness, inclusion in His kingdom, rescue from judgment and hell, eternal life, his grace also includes the free gift of empowerment to live in ways that are like Him, including empowerment to live graciously. And this empowerment is, is part of how the Bible uses this word, grace. So I take it that Acts 4 means when it says great grace was upon the early church, 
that, that that was manifesting itself in sacrificial generosity. It means God was empowering the church members to freely give as they had freely received every blessing and everything most needful from Him in Christ. They thought, I want to be like my God. He has given to me so freely, so lavishly to meet all my true needs. I want to do that too for His people all around me. I want to be used by God to be an instrument of His free giving to His people. There is uh, another passage in the New Testament that uses the word grace very much like this uh, repeatedly. It's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, you can turn to those chapters in your Bibles. I think this will help you understand what's meant in Acts 4, that the church had great grace on her. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Grace as Christian generosity, empowered by God, motivated by the gospel. So first, Paul talks about the incredible generosity of the church in Macedonia, and he describes their giving and their meeting of needs as the grace of God among those churches. Listen to how 2 Corinthians 8 begins. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2 explains, For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And the word for favor there is actually the same word for grace. They begged us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. Well, then in in verses 6 and 7 of that chapter, Paul talks about the Corinthian church joining the Macedonian churches in in an offering to meet the needs of uh, the saints in the Jerusalem church. And he calls this generous collection an act of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 6 says, We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should... Complete among you this act of grace. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Generosity. Down in verse 9, Paul shows how generous giving mirrors the grace God has shown us in the gospel. Verse 9, 4 You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The incarnation and the cross was infinite sacrificial giving to meet our need. The saving work of Christ was the greatest act of generosity the world will ever see or could ever see. In the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, after encouraging the church members to give bountifully and willingly and cheerfully, 
In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he, he tells them about that kind of giving. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then finally, at the end of chapter 9, he tells them that the needy Christians who receive their gifts will glorify God because of their generosity, verse 14, and they will long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Doesn't that sound a lot like Acts 4.32? The surpassing grace of God was upon the Corinthian church, seen in their generosity. Great grace was upon the church in Jerusalem in Acts 4, seen in their generosity. Free, sacrificial giving and sharing in the church is grace, living and working among us. The early church of Acts 4 exemplified grace. They were of one heart and soul. No one said anything was his own. They were willing to give things up, to be able to give money away, to meet each other's needs. That, that, what I just described, that is soaking and dripping with grace. If we will be a church about which it can be said, great grace is upon us. Minimally, we must also be a church about which it can be said there's not a needy person among us. No one needy. And at the same time, no one tight-fisted or greedy in a church of great grace, every member has this generous spirit, not just the most wealthy. Verse 33 said, great grace was upon them all. I take that to mean even those who were most needy, like the churches in Macedonia, were generous out of the abundance of their poverty, Paul said. Second Corinthians also showed us that if great grace or surpassing grace is upon us, then our generosity will not necessarily be limited to the believers in our own local church or the cause of Christ among us locally, but we can partner with one another to be generous toward other churches that are in need and support the advance of the gospel in other places as well. And if we do, then the surpassing grace of God will be seen on us. You know, in God's providence, I think we have an opportunity to do that. Even this week, the church that we went went. Uh, rent from. They had people connected with their church who suffered serious loss today. Can we be generous to them? Uh, we, we are going to give to them some of the money that we have saved from our church. If, if you want to join us in this act of grace, you already have joined us in this act of grace because the money we've saved as a church didn't, dis- didn't appear from nowhere. It came from you because of how much grace is upon you. Uh, but if you do want to participate further in, in this act of grace, then you can talk to Matt or Justin about that. I didn't ask them about that. I assume that's okay with them. Well, verses uh, 36 and 37 uh, tell us, back in Acts 4 now, tell us about one church member in particular who had great grace upon him. So, so look now at verse 36 in Acts 4. Meet, meet one great grace man. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, here we find an individual who was doing exactly what the previous verses said was happening. But what, what is the purpose of this little aside about Joseph? I think for one, it introduces us to a person who's going to have a big hand in the spread of the gospel later in Acts. This guy will become the missionary partner of the apostle Paul. But we find here that before he went out as a fruitful missionary, he was first a faithful, generous member of the church in Jerusalem. Before he showed his commitment to the gospel by leaving his home and land to be a missionary, he showed his commitment to the gospel by parting with some land to be generous to the people of Christ around him at home. And the people whom the church should send out for the cause of Christ abroad are the people who are actively living for the cause of Christ at home in various ways, including being generous to the Christians around them. Now, another reason these verses are here is that this act of grace shows us one way. Joseph was living up to the nickname the apostles gave him, son of encouragement. Generosity is encouraging. And and not just to the one who directly benefits from the sacrifice. The whole church can be encouraged. Grace is multiplied throughout the church when an individual exemplifies grace through giving. Another reason we get these details about the gift of Barnabas is to set up the story that follows. Uh, In Acts 5, we're going to hear about the guy who's next in line behind Barnabas, bringing money to lay down at the feet of the apostles. And it, it appeared as if great grace is upon this guy too, just like Barnabas, but but the next man up is a phony. And his story will show us how the enemy was attempting to undermine the advance of the gospel from inside the church. And the way that God deals with this man cultivates a second heart posture that spiritually protects the church. So after seeing a church of great grace, now we'll see a church of great fear. A church of great fear. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. See who followed on the heels of Barnabas. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So all the same verbs from the previous Uh, Paragraph or repeated here, selling property, bringing proceeds, legging them down at the apostles' feet. But something else is happening this time. Ananias kept back some of the sale for himself. Now, how wrong is that? I mean, have you ever sold anything and not given all your earnings away? Look at verse 3. See what the problem is. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? There's the issue. He's lying about what he's doing. He wants to make it seem like he's giving it all away just like Barnabas and the others were. 
But he's lying. His offering of grace is a lie. He's pretending. Whether he said, I'm going to sell this land and give it away, and then didn't, or or whether that was clearly what he intended to communicate based on everything that was going on, we're not sure. But what's clear is, is he was deceitfully Chasing the respect and and esteem that might come from from giving all the sale away. He wants people to think well of him and speak well of him beyond what is actually true of him. And verse 4 makes it clear. Again, this this is the real problem. Look there. Peter questions him. While the land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Do you understand the questions Peter asked? He, he, he said, before you sold this land, didn't it belong to you already? Meaning you didn't have to sell it. No one was forcing you to do this. And then the next question, after you sold it, weren't all the proceeds just yours at your disposal? with which you could do as as you chose. You didn't have to give away all the proceeds. You didn't have to give away part of them. No one was forcing you to do that. If giving is compulsory, it's not grace. And other believers in the church were voluntarily selling and giving. So why did you decide in your heart to do this, to lie about keeping back some of the proceeds, which wasn't wrong in and of itself? Why lie to try and make everyone else think you were more generous than you really were? Ultimately, this lie is not against man, but God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Did you really think you would deceive God bringing this offering? So you see, his great sin was not primarily a lack of generosity. His great sin was faking it. He was playing church. He was turning the church's beautiful, powerful display of grace into a religious show. A a deceptive, empty, unreal, self-righteous show. This, This is especially offensive to God faking worship, a put-on commitment to Christ in the gospel. This is a lie that grieves the Holy Spirit, pretend godliness. And in this instance, it was, it was satanic. Verse 3 said, uh, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? And it's not hard to see that as a deliberate contrast with what we have been reading about the church in Acts, as in verse 31, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So here comes this church member who in the midst of a Spirit-filled church has in some sense a Satan-filled heart making an insincere offering. Well, that's the second battlefront that Satan opened up against the advance of the gospel and the spiritual vitality of the church. This is the inside job. To fill the church with people who are just pretending. Who mostly just care to look 
like they're living lives of grace, whether or not there's actually any reality behind the appearance. Making church an empty show, a fellowship of people living double lives. And Satan's the father of lies. He's a deceiver, and so he strives to make people deceivers and liars in the church to deceive others about how righteous they really are. Maybe even deceive themselves to imagine God somehow isn't noticing. Satan's the prince of darkness, and so he wants people in the church to hide and cover up what they're really doing. Satan, do you remember, the Bible says, at times disguises himself as an angel of light. He wants to make men content to put on the same disguise, just just a costume of righteousness, but not the real deal. The early church was seeing many people saved, new members added rapidly, and so Satan went to work trying to hollow out the church members' actions and, and make their participation in the fellowship have less and less integrity to it until their religious devotion was mostly just a big lie. And look at verse 5 to see how God responded to this. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. God does not want his grace made into a sham. So don't pretend. Oh, don't pretend. You're not fooling God. Can we resolve to cut out of our lives all pretending in our practice of our faith? Don't fake the faith. Don't be deceitful. Don't let your walk with God hollow out and become a show that you're putting on for others or for yourself somehow. That can happen subtly. Keep a close watch over your heart. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. That is not, that's not going to work. Dishonest Christianity provokes the spirit of, of truth. And God was moving in great power in the early church, and so he moved powerfully against this satanic invasion of insincere religion into it. And the Lord put an end to it so it wouldn't become a leaven that would spread and spoil the whole body. Well, what about his wife? What, what came of her? We met her in verse 1-2. She comes back on the scene in verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She didn't know her husband was now dead and already buried. But remember, Sapphira did know what happened with the fake grace donation. Verse 2 said, with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds. So she knew full well the details of this deceitful plan, and she was in on it. And so Peter questions her in verse 8 to see if she will double down on the ruse. Look at verse 8. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Yes, that's correct. We, we sold it for the amount we gave. One lie begets another. 
If your religion becomes an act, you'll have to keep acting. Unless you want to come out to the light and repent. And Peter's question here was an invitation to repent. Sapphira was presented with an off-ramp here. She, She had a chance to leave the path of sin she was on. This was an opportunity for honesty, confession, repentance. This was an opportunity for grace. But she chose to feed the lie and test the Spirit of the Lord. Look at verse 9. Peter said, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. So if the sin of Ananias was playing church, the sin of Sapphira was playing along. It was the sin of agreement. It's the word in verse 9. She, she agreed. She went along with it. So she became his partner in his dishonest show. She participated by giving consent to this deceit. So if, if someone asks you to walk with them in darkness to join them in the secrecy of deception, to join them in the the falsehood of pretend righteousness. Come out from among them. Do not walk in agreement with them, giving your consent and playing along. You don't want to be of one mind with hypocrites. You want to be of one heart and one soul with believers who follow Christ honestly even about their sin, who don't try and appear better than they really are, who are truly gripped by God's grace. Sapphira agreed with her husband, so she shared in his sin. And just like Peter announced, she shared uh, in her husband's ultimate end, too. That happens in verse 9, which says, Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out. And buried her beside her husband. So since she agreed with him in his sin, it was fitting that she ended up buried right beside him. They shared in the sin, they shared in the wages of that sin. When Ananias dropped dead, verse 5 told us, great fear came upon all who heard, and the same thing happened when Sapphira was judged, look at verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This fear was a great blessing of God that was falling upon his people. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil. It's living with a deep conviction about the reality of God that sin is against him, that he won't be fooled, that he is righteous and holy and good. There is so much peace and safety in fearing God. And we see in Acts 4 here, God cares deeply about the purity of his church. God cares deeply about the sincerity of his church. And that's why he stirred the early church to great fear. When great fear falls upon a church, the people think, I'm not going to live like God is not real. I'm not going to live like God doesn't see. I'm not going to live like God can be lied to or like God might be a compromising judge. 
I'm not going to live like the Holy Spirit in the church isn't holy because I know and believe God. I'm too afraid to fake it. When great fear came on the church, God was protecting His church from satanic temptations to be fakers in practicing their faith. The fear fear of the Lord protects us from pretending. If you really fear God, you will not be satisfied just appearing to be devoted to Him. In the church of great fear, there won't be faking and unchecked hypocrisy. And in the church of great fear, there won't be secret sin. Now, you and I both know that what happened to Ananias and Sapphira doesn't happen very often. God does not typically strike dead all religious pretenders while they're in the act, dramatically caught in the lie and exposed at church. But that doesn't mean that they're getting away with it. It doesn't mean that they have successfully lied to the Holy Spirit. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira illustrates something that will happen for everyone. Ecclesiastes 12:14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you do good in secret, that's coming out too. Romans 2:16, God will judge the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4:5, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of our hearts, and then each one will receive his praise from God. Luke 12, 1 through 3, Jesus told his disciples, his disciples, real believers, he told them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Fear God and come out into the light. In the light, God's grace is always given to us. There's nothing to fear in the light. His grace is given lavishly and freely. Now, before we end here, I I, I want to point out that it might not seem to you like great fear and great grace should go together. But they do. Those who fear God, who know and trust the reality of God in His holiness, are also the ones who know and, and trust the reality of God in His love. Great grace and great fear both result from being gripped by the reality of God. Gripped by the reality of God's grace, I want to be generous. Gripped by the reality of God's holiness, I cannot pursue insincere, dishonest discipleship. If we had time, we could think of many other ways that great grace and great fear go hand in hand. Well, I hope you've um, sensed that this passage is really important to see how Satan responds to the spread of the gospel. He stirs up persecutors outside the church and pretenders inside. 
persecution and insincere fake religion. Those are his two main strategies to harm and slow the spread of the gospel. But even though Satan was attacking the church in Jerusalem in these ways, the fellowship was in a really good place because great grace and great fear was upon them and God was protecting the church through those things. And that will keep us safe today, no matter what happens in our country, in the world. Grace-fueled generosity, God-fearing honesty. God will protect our souls through these. And on the flip side, we see what dangers can threaten our church family from within. Uh, Selfish materialism and pretend religion. Maybe we could say the American dream and, and Bible Belt hypocrisies. Okay, none of us should think we're above these things. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. God, I pray that you would help us to take heed and to stand. I pray that great grace would be upon us. And I pray that great fear would come upon us so we could live lives that are in step with the gospel. And so you could maximally use us to see the gospel spread. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.